I'll tell you a Father's Day story. You want a Father's Day story? <laughs> when I was like six, I think six on Father's Day, because I grew up here in this town, right? So we went down to Pebbles Beach off the end of Cochrane, and the tide was way up high. My dad was wearing his cool new short shorts, you know, Father's Day and his muscle shirt. And we were climbing over the rocks, and I slipped and I fell on the rocks, right? At, and I sliced my leg like bad, like 17 stitches bad, like blood everywhere. And my little brother was there. He's four. My little sister's there too. We're just the three of us with my dad. So dad's got to like huff all three of us up the hill, and I'm bleeding everywhere. He's got his shirt off. It's tied around his leg. It's a good Father's Day story that I always tell my kids about. So anyways, hopefully none of us have that experience this Father's Day. Right on. Hey, let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, Lord. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so, Father, we pray this morning that your word and your spirit would pierce our hearts. Lord, that you would remove the life of the flesh, that you would bring forth the life of the Holy Spirit within us. And so, God, we ask your blessing upon this time in the word. Amen. Hey, do you guys want the AC left on? Can we flick that off? Is it too loud? Let's flick that off. We won't get too hot. All right. Sweet. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, and we're kind of picking things up here. We're going to pick up at verse uh, 12 in this series where we've been. And Paul is writing to this church in the, uh, the city of Philippi. It's a Roman colony. And Philippi was known for its national patriotism. And so the, the Christians... They were serving Jesus, living for Jesus in the city of Philippi. We're like living in the hotbed of Roman nationalism. But their life was called to be shaped by another king. They were, to be, they were to be surrendered to King Jesus. And so naturally, that opened the door for trouble for them. Hotbed of Roman patriotism, serving King Jesus. And it's just potential ground for trouble. And so what we've been seeing is this, is that Paul's been calling this church to stand firm. That they are to stand side by side. That they are to strive for the faith of the gospel. That they're not to be, a, to be frightened by those who would oppose them. That they're not to be frightened in the face of suffering or in the potential of conflict. Paul said this to them in verse 27. You can look at it if you want in your own Bibles. But he says this in verse 27. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so, you know, here's this, this Roman colony where they're known for their patriotism. And Paul says this, I want you to be known as citizens. I, I want you to be known for your patriotism, but yours is to another king. You're a follower of Jesus. And so you're to live as citizens of heaven you're to live as loyal subjects to your king. You know, it's only natural that the kingdom of God would come into conflict with this world. I found it super interesting this week to watch what happened with Trinity Western, and I'm sure lots of you guys know about that. I just quickly mentioned that. I'm like, I was kind of looking online on some forums, and I couldn't believe the venom that was being spewed against followers of Jesus as this uh, decision was muted out by the Supreme Court regarding their law school. And so it's natural, it's natural that there would be conflict between the world and the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is talking to this church about. He says, it's going to happen. You're going to have critics. You're going to have opponents. You're going to have conflicts. Don't be frightened. But stand firm as citizens of the kingdom. Hold out the gospel as we're going to see. And so chapter 2 kind of began, we're going to get to verse 12, but it began this way with Paul calling the church to take encouragement from the example of Jesus. He pointed them to the example of Jesus who was very God of very God, who is very God of very God, and who though he was very God, condescended, he took the form of a servant, he clothed himself in human flesh, and he became obedient even to death, death on a cross, and Paul said, and God has exalted him. To the highest place that he has received now the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See what Paul has been saying is this. Jesus 
served God's purposes, and God exalted him. And as followers of Jesus, the same attitude is to be ours. That same heart, that same mind that Jesus had that would say, Lord, I submit to your will. I submit to your plan. I, I will seek to live my life as your servant, as a servant of your will. Uh, I'll forget about myself and I will surrender to the will of King Jesus. And so the ideal is this. Here's the ideal where we kind of left off. Paul said the ideal is Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. And that's it. That's the ideal of the Christian life. To be like Jesus. Now, after saying that, I just think that's also the problem of the Christian life. Right there. That's the ideal and the problem. Because be like Jesus? Are you kidding? Like, who's kidding who? How do, you, how do you live up to that? Oh, that's it? Like, how hard could that be? Just be like Jesus. You know, Will's not here this morning. I was hoping to poke fun a little bit at Will. But, you know, we, uh, the two of us went off this weekend. We got involved with the Young Life fundraiser. We went and, well, Will golfed 100 holes of golf. And I was just his caddy driving the cart. That's like f almost five and a half rounds. It took 11 hours. Okay, so he was golfing. I was caddy, golf cart driver extraordinaire, sliding in there, quick swing, get on, the, get on the cart, drive to the next ball. It was like, go, 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 go. And 100 holes of golf is a lot. Like, it's a lot. I watched Will drive 100 balls off the tee. And... Um, Actually, it was more like 130 balls off the tee <laughs> because it was like, redo, <laughs> mulligan. And it was great. You know, he'd strike the ball and the ball would kind of do this thing. Do you know that one? What's that called? A slice. That's right. It's called a, it's called a slice. Um, now, it's funny because it, like a slice in my mind is kind of this motion. But when it's like this, I don't know if it's like more of a pizza or a pie but that was kind of like more like Will's ball. So you can make sure you rouse him about that. And so I was tempted to say to Will, you know, Will, if you want that ball to go straight, if you want to drive that thing like 340 yards, then I can tell you what you need to do. And he'd be all over it, right? What do I do? Just tell me. Tell me how I can drive that straight. Well, Will, do you know who Tiger Woods is? Yeah. Yeah, Matt, I know who Tiger Woods is. Okay, Will. You got to hit the ball like Tiger. Oh, really, Matt? That's it, eh? That's it. That's all you got. Hit the ball like Tiger. If only it was that easy. And then there's us, you know, Christians. We say like this, just be like Jesus. The ideal is the problem. You know, just be like Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus, in parentheses, who is very God of very God. It's very inspirational to consider the example of Jesus, but like practically, how do you go about that, right? Paul's like told us about this. And, and how does a mortal man or woman ever hope to follow through with that? Drive that one straight. Do what Jesus did. Accomplish what Jesus accomplished. Achieve what Jesus accomplished. So I would say this, you know, as we come to this text this morning, as we, as we try to catch this, the whole thrust of this message, I would sum it up just like this. The whole thrust of this text today is this, is that it takes more than an example on the outside. You need power from the inside. Like Tiger Woods. Like Tiger Woods is a hard worker. Don't kid yourself. You golf fans know that. It's like, I don't know, one of the hardest working guys in that game. But the reality is, is this, is Tiger has a gift, doesn't he? He's like something that's like God-given, that's innate, that's natural to him as an athlete. And he's honed that skill. He's worked it hard. But he has something that only God has blessed him with. And when we, when we talk about Jesus, when Paul points us to Jesus, he's setting before us this divine example, the ideal, the pattern and we have the example, but what we need is power on the inside so that we can live it out, so that we can follow through. And there are, there are some skills that you're born with, and here's one of them, to be made like Jesus. So you've been born again. The Spirit of God lives within you. He who can make you like Jesus dwells within you. You've been born again. 
by the power of God. And so Paul begins to talk about salvation. So let's check it out. And verse 12 is where we'll dive in here. He says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says this about the Philippians. He says, you guys have a pattern. There's a pattern to your life of faith. You're engaged. You're active. When I'm there and present with you, you guys are digging in and diving deep. You, you obeyed in my presence, but now I, I'm absent. Now I'm sitting in a cell in Rome and I'm writing to you. And I want you to continue in that pattern. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he tells him, work out your salvation. No, work, work it out. I mean, we, that, that paints a certain metaphor, working out in our culture and in our mind, you know. Uh, in, in Paul's day, the metaphor is different. When we say work it out, it's a different metaphor. It's, it's this, the verbiage is, was a mining term. It means this, go into your mine and do digging. Get into the mine and get all the ore out of that mine so that you can get something of value and something of worth. Or the same term was used for farming, actually. Work your field. Get all the, all the, all the produce out of that field. Get the greatest harvest possible. It's actually Jesus used the same idea when he said, the fields are ripe unto harvest, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his field. And so Paul says, you've got to get into the mine, and you've got to begin to pull out the goods, the elements, the precious things that are in the mine of salvation. Work it. Take ownership of that thing. Apply yourself with greater diligence and vigilance. See, this is the call to the active pursuit of the will of God. It says, don't stop. Don't stop. Now, when I, when I think about that, it, for me, you know, to say, work it out. He says, well, he says this, work out what God has worked into you. That means this, that, that transformation happens on the inside first. Something has to happen in here for it to work out. Faith in Jesus is always inside to outside. Just like we've been having this discussion the last few weeks, you know, Blake touched on it last week, I touched on it the week before, this discussion on unity. That the power for unity is sourced from inside. Outside pressure does not produce unity. Outside pressure produces uniformity. It's an inward heart and desire that draws the people of God together. Uniformity, this outside pressure that produces uniformity, causes everybody to look the same. You know, God's desire was never for us all to look the same. Like, just look around the room. His desire was not for us all to look the same, dress the same, you know, same skin color, you know, or like some of us are tall and some are short and some are skinny and some are not so skinny and some have hair and some don't have much hair left. And, and you know, we look in creation, there's no two flowers the same. We know there's no two snowflakes that are the same and no two Christians are to be the same. We, we, ha we have to have the identifiable markers that make us Christians. We're to, we're, to, we're to have Jesus as the Lord of our lives. We're to be like Jesus but we have to be ourselves and we have to work out this salvation that God has worked into us. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. So just to be clear, we don't believe salvation is by works. No man can work his way into salvation, but we certainly believe salvation works in your life. Salvation will produce works in your life. And we believe that that what God does on the inside has to permeate to the outside of our lives. So much so that I would say this, if you have no desire in your life to, to conform into the image of Jesus, to, 
to produce holiness, if you have no desire for that whatsoever in your life, you should take a double look in the mirror and say, am I really in, in Christ? Because faith in Jesus has to work from the inside to the outside of our lives. It touches everything. It has to. And so here, you know, is another one of these great spots in scripture where you see divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility meeting one another and it's very practical in the life of a believer. Work out what God has worked in. I love verse 13. Check it out again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if that one's not underlined in your Bible, underline it, man. Circle it. Put brackets around it. Go home and meditate on this scripture this week. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's saying this, there's power on the inside. And we're told to work out, of our, work out our salvation. And, and I want to say, you know, don't be discouraged when you're told to work out your salvation because what Paul tells us, what the word of God tells us here is that, that God has assumed responsibility for making you like Jesus. He's taken it on. He's going to complete the work that he's begun. For it is God who works in you, Paul says. You simply work out what God has worked in. You know who's working on the inside of you? It's God. God is the very answer to every question of your life. The anxiety of your heart? The Lord. You know, go to him. He's the answer. The tempest, the storm? He's the answer. In temptation? His word says he's provided the way out. Guidance? He'll direct you. He is the all-sufficient God and he is at work in you if you are in Christ. In you. That's what he says. And we know how God enters. When we, in repentance, turn from sin and in faith, turn to Jesus, God comes, the indwelling presence of the living God, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us as followers of Jesus Christ. He enters us. But he doesn't rob us of you know, freedom. He doesn't rob us of volition or personality or individuality. But he is looking to conform us to the will of God. And the spirit begins to work within. He, as he's doing that, he's longing to burst out. That's what I feel like as you read that. It's like he's longing to permeate all the areas of my life. He's longing to burst through Matt and through you. And all the while, I'm like setting up restraints, you know. Even though I'm a follower of Jesus, setting up restraints, holding him back in my flesh. And he's longing to burst out and reveal his working in each of our lives and reveal the glory of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's at work within you. If you're in Christ, he's at work within you. You know, we talk about Father's Day. God is not an absentee father. He hasn't left his creation. He hasn't, you know, he isn't absent in creation or in providence or absent in the spirit of a man. He's working. And sometimes his working is so unobtrusive that it's like you don't even sometimes recognize the way that he's working in your own life as, as you seek to be surrendered. His mighty power is at work. And Paul tells us here that this is what God is doing. He's working his will in us. That's amazing. It's not that he's treating you like a machine, like I'm going to press your buttons and I'm going to force you to do what I want and leave you with no choice. No, he's, he's dealing with us as his creation. He's working his will and he's giving us the freedom to say yes to him and to say no to him, to resist him and to partner with him. He's working his will in us. I was thinking about it. How do you recognize the working of God's will in your life? I would say this. One of the ways that you can recognize the working of God's will is that God's will in you will do this. It will produce some sort of dissatisfaction with life. Some sort of holy dissatisfaction with yourself 
the will of God will work into you. The spirit of God will say, man, don't be content with that. Don't be content with life like this. I have more. My will and in my plans, I have more for you. I desire to birth change in you. And you know, often that discontentment will surface in your life. Sometimes in a prayer, you might not even recognize that you do it. It's like, God, I want to change. Change me in this area. God, do this work in me. Lord, I'm asking you to change this, that you would work this out. God, work out your salvation in me. You know, we believe that can happen, right? In faith, we trust, we trust God. We trust his promises that in some area he'll work in our life. And we partner with him and he changes us. And Paul says he does it for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. You know, when God made the world, the scripture tells us that he looked upon his creation. He said this, man, this is good. This is very good. You know, when Jesus, when the spirit descended on Jesus, what did God the Father say? This voice was audible from heaven. The crowds heard it. And they heard the Lord say from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased. He brings me pleasure. This is my good pleasure to work in my son. And it's, it's God's good pleasure to work in you. It's good and pleasing and brings pleasure to God when his people say this, God, I want to work out what you're working into me. You know, too many Christians live this life where they just obey God because of outside pressure. It's like, uh, they like feel pressure from the church. They feel pressure from, I don't know, parents or they feel pressure from some source and it's like they try to obey and they try to be good Christians because of outside pressure. And what does it produce? Lifelessness. Lifelessness. Outside pressure makes obedience to the word of God a frustrating thing. But when we surrender the power of God on the inside, what happens is this, is that obedience becomes a delight. It becomes a source of joy. It becomes an expression of love rather than a battle and a frustration. You know, I would say this to you. If, if obedience, when you think about working out your salvation, if obedience to you is a battle, then ask yourself this. Am I trying to obey because of outside pressure or am I seeking to obey because of the inside leading of the Holy Spirit? And so Paul says this, work it out. It's in there. It's in there. You begin to work out what the Spirit is calling you to. And actually he says this, work it out with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling meaning to, to give some real thought to what you're doing. Work out your salvation soberly, man. Be clear-minded. Be thoughtful. So yes, the call is this. Be like Jesus. He's the example. But know this. God is only asking of you that which he has already worked into you by the power of his spirit. So where to start? You know, I would say this, like if you think, well, okay, well, where do I start then? If I'm, if I'm asking God to work out what's on the inside, to work out salvation, then where, where do I begin? Give me something practical. Well, that's exactly what Paul does. He gives us three practical thoughts here. Three practical instructions for working out your salvation. And the first one he says is this, shine. Shine like a star. You want your life to shine for Jesus? Then do this. Check out verse 14. This is killer, man. This isn't nice, soft, fluffy stuff. Look what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Shoot. Disqualified right there, man. I'm gone. So do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, to tell me not to grumble and to not have to dispute is like totally contrary to the nature of this natural man. Like, is that fair for all of us? Yeah, amen. I, I was thinking about you, Darcy. <laughs> Grumbling, you know, murmuring, the Jewish term, kvetching, right? And, and, you know, in my flesh, 
I kind of enjoy grumbling. In my flesh, well, no doubt about it, like I enjoy a dispute, a little battle. And you know, grumbling, and you, you know, it's funny, I heard Will. That grumble, that murmur, as he was swinging that club, you know, just like just under his breath, a little bit there. And, and grumbling are those, those half-said thoughts, murmurs, half-said things under your breath. The inward, impatient thoughts and hard feelings. They sound like this. I wish that preacher would shut up, <laughs> you know. You don't say it out loud, but you think it, you know. I think, man, is he over? Is he finished yet? You know, or they, the, the grumblings, the murmurs, when they surface, like for me, in the grocery aisle, you know, at, you know, at the checkout. Like, seriously, can we go any slower? Spend half my life waiting for people, right? You know, and then the person in front of you is like, oh, I forgot one thing. I'll just go grab this. You know it, the mumbling the murmuring, kvetching that happens under your breath. He says disputes. You know, do all things without disputing. Disputes are the grumblings and the murmurings that actually surface, that you work out. You know, they come, come to the surface and they break out in unchecked, angry words and actions. And so this call here is Paul saying this, man, let me just give you something really practical. You want to work it out? Then keep your heart and your tongue right before Lord, before the Lord. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. I'm like, man, that's tough. That, that's tough. That's rubber meat in the road in terms of the Christian life. And that's not normal. I would tell you that. Like the culture of this world, it is not normal to do things without grumbling and disputing. That's human nature. That, that's the life of the flesh. And so Paul says this, if you'll just do that, if you will do all things without grumbling and disputing, he says, look what he says. He says, you will shine like a star. That's amazing. Like if you stop and consider that and think about it, get the image of a star in your mind. There's nothing like a clear night when that, I was thinking about this last night, so I had to go out on the deck and look and the moon was just coming out and the first star was there. And there's nothing like, like a, a beautiful night, like last night, like tonight's going to be when that, those first stars start to appear in the night sky. And, and you look up and you can't help but spot the star because the star in contrast to the, the night sky is like astounding. It's just like pop, there it is. It shines. And there is something star-like about the influence of a follower of Jesus who will do what Paul says here. He won't grumble or dispute. There's something star-like about the influence you have as a follower of Jesus on other people if you'll just do this. You will stand out, Paul says, against the culture of this world. You'll look different. You'll shine a light. People will notice. You know, F.B. Meyer said this. He's a Bible commentary, commentator that I really love. He said this. He's an old guy. Long gone. He said, you as a child of God cannot come in contact with other men who belong to this crooked and perverse generation without starting within them the vibrations of your own holiness the yearning for something better than they are, the appetite, the hunger and thirst after the unseen and the eternal, the condemnation of their sin and the creation within them of the vibrations and waves of desire to be something better than they are. That's what your influence is in this world. You just seek to follow Jesus. As you begin to work out what God has worked in, you shine like a star. And when you're working out your salvation, it has an effect on people. The reverse, unfortunately, is also true for us as followers of Jesus. You know, when we're not working out our salvation, the world has its influence. The culture of this world has its influence on us. And it draws us into its system of thinking and its values. Because the reality is this, is that, that like, no person, no man is an island unto himself. And so it's a solemn responsibility that Paul is calling the church to. 
You live in this colony. You live in this world. But I'm calling you to live as citizens of another kingdom. Citizens of heaven. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be a grumbler. Don't be a disputer. I mean, the classic example is who? The children of Israel, 40 years wandering in the desert because they were complainers. Because they were grumblers. Paul gives us another practical one in verse 16. It's this. He says, speak. You need a voice that speaks. Read verse, I'll read verse 16 for you. It says this. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So as well as being a star that shines, Paul says this, you need to be a, a voice that speaks. We're to have that voice that speaks. The, this uh, translation says, uh, holding fast to the word of life. Um, the NIV says, holding out the word of life. The King James Version, I like it. It says, holding forth the word of life. So holding fast, holding out, holding forth. And the picture is that you're presenting the word of God to the world, that you're speaking it. Because you can't hold out the word, you can't hold forth the word without speaking it. Our responsibility to the Lord as we work out our salvation, as we work out what is within us, that work of the Spirit, is that we have a responsibility to speak for King Jesus. To be ambassadors. To present the word of the kingdom. To present the gospel. And we shine as we speak. You know, last week Blake shared with us, you know, from Ephesians chapter 1, it was good and... and we talked regarding the baptism of the Spirit and one of the, one of the fruits of the overflowing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is this, is that the Spirit of God gives us boldness to speak for King Jesus. He makes us bold regarding the, the true word of the gospel and who Jesus is. And speaking is a practical part of working out what God has worked in. And the power needed to speak is present inside of you. Listen. The power needed to speak is present inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so what we need is a life surrendered to the will of the Spirit. I, I know that there's many probably thinking here this morning, well, I'm just not comfortable. I'm not comfortable talking about Jesus. I'm not comfortable talking about matters of faith with people. Like just, what, you just want me to bring that stuff up? Like just turn conversations into spiritual conversations and tell people about Jesus? That, that's not me. You know, that's for the evangelist. That's for someone who's wired that, that way. I, I'm content to shine like a star. Okay, I won't grumble. Won't dispute, but ask me to speak and I'm out. Well, I would say this to you. One of the ways that you can recognize that working of the Holy Spirit in you, the working out of your salvation, again is this, that God will produce in you a holy dissatisfaction. You know, I just would ask you this. Do you have a dissatisfaction with how you speak with regards to Jesus and other people? Do you like, man, I wish I would be more bold. I wish I would have jumped on that opportunity. Man, that was gold. The Lord set that up. Why didn't I do that? Lord, I wish, I want to speak for you. You, you. Maybe you just, and that's the working of the Spirit. He will birth a desire to change. And like I said earlier, it will often, it will often surface in a prayer. You know, God, I'm not comfortable with speaking, but I'm dissatisfied with not speaking. Help me, Lord. Help me. I ask you, you take my lips, Lord, and you turn them on fire for you. Take my mouth, Lord, and make it your instrument that I would share Christ with people. You know, Lord, if you'll open my, if you'll light my lips on fire, I'll open my mouth and I'll share with Jesus, share Jesus with people. Lord, I simply don't want to shine. I want to speak. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That's his working. And he's asking you, will you partner with me? 
Will you allow me to baptize you in my presence so that your life would overflow and you'd speak forth the power and the gospel of King Jesus? Partner with him. He'll work it out. You don't know how to do it. You don't have to know how to do it. You say, Lord, I surrender my lips to you. Make them your instrument, Lord. Help me, Lord, to speak for your name and for your kingdom. You know, it's interesting that that there's two things in verse 16. If you look at verse 16 again, that Paul attached to the holding forth of the word of life. I'll read it again. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Two things motivated Paul to speak. The first one is this, the day of Christ. You know, Paul was this guy that just lived with an anticipation that Jesus was coming. He, he, he was, it motivated him. It motivated his life. It motivated his ministry. It motivated him to tell people about Jesus because he sensed this time was short, that there wasn't enough time that Jesus was coming, so he needed to speak. The second thing is this, is that Paul was concerned about running or laboring in vain. He didn't want it to live life and produce no results. Like that, nobody wants that, Right? No fruit to him was a waste of his life. He did not want his life to be lived in vain. And so he had to speak. He had to. And I would just say this to you, like, what are you laboring for? What are you laboring for? What are you running after? Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life when you can serve Jesus with it. What are you running after? Paul said, for me, if I'm speaking the gospel, then my labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. And that brings us to the third application of, of this working out your salvation. He, he, he says, shine. He says, speak. And then he tells him this, sacrifice. Sacrifice for the kingdom. Let your life be a sacrifice. Look at verse 17 and 18. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Sacrifice. Paul says this. He says, my life, uh, as he talked about his life, he says it's like a drink offering. It's like a, a libation, a drink that is poured out before God that is offered to him and it is being poured out before him as an offering. And, it, and you know, as I think about that and, and just consider what Paul's saying, you know, it seems to me that if our lives are going to produce anything for the kingdom of God, if our lives are going to have any lasting effect for King Jesus, then it's going to come at a cost. It's going to come at a cost. You know, I just reminds me of the words that the Lord says all throughout the scripture. He said this, if you seek me, you will find me. But the key is this, is the if. If you will seek me, then you will find me. And it's just implied there's a cost with seeking. You know, Jesus said to those who would come after him, he said this, Pick up your cross daily and follow me. That's costly. It sounds really costly to me. And as Paul gets practical, this is for me where the bar gets raised. You know, it's just like, he just moves it up. And I love that about Christianity. Christianity raises the bar and says, come up here. Live up here. Not by in your own power, but by the, the presence of God's spirit. Work out what God has worked in. You want to follow Jesus? Awesome. But it's going to cost you. It will cost you to follow King Jesus. You know, when I was 17, I graduated from Elfie. 25 years. Is, uh, yeah, sheesh. Shouldn't admit that. Wow, that's like, wow. Uh, 1993, graduated from Elfie. I was 17. And uh, I couldn't get out of this little town fast enough. And so I moved up north. I went to Prince George. And my parents took me up there. They dropped me off with some friends. 
And uh, I didn't have a car or nothing like that. So my, my mom and dad said to me, they said, get a job, get, a, get established, and then we'll work together with you and, and you can get a car. And so I thought, okay, cool. So, you know, I got a job. I got a job in the Sears warehouse and I started working away and scraping some money together and got a little bit of money scraped together and I was riding the bus, of course. And so I got the money scraped together and I called home. I said, hey, I got some money, you know. Okay, let's do this car thing, you know. And I can't remember if it was my mom or my dad. I was trying to remember, you know, who, who dropped the hammer on me. But... Uh, when I called home, I was told this, you know, we've been thinking about this and we've been talking about this and we just decided that probably the best experience for you, the best growing lesson in life for you would be this, that you should buy a car on your own, you know, rather than us like kicking up our money and signing papers with our name on it, that it would be a good experience for you to grow in life, you know, learn the value of a dollar, learn, learn the, the value of owning a car and what's involved with that. The struggle will do you good. That's, you know, that was the lesson. And I got off the phone and I grumbled and I murmured and I probably disputed it, came out loud. I'm positive of it, you know. And then I went and bought a new bus pass and I rode the bus a little longer and, you know, the hard highway in Prince George is pretty cold in the winter. I had some, you know, minus 20, pushing minus 25 mornings standing out there waiting for the bus, but it didn't kill me. I, like, learned a lesson. And my parents in their wisdom knew that that which cost me nothing wasn't going to help a 17-year-old. And the same is true in the kingdom of God. Sacrifice. Sacrifice for the kingdom. If, if you're going to follow Jesus and if you're going to have an effect for his name and for his kingdom and for his glory, then let me tell you this. You're going to have to pull up your bootstraps. You're going to have to man up. You're going to have to get serious. Because that which costs you nothing isn't going to benefit anybody else. And so Paul calls his church to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. You know, think about Paul. Did ministry in Philippi cost Paul? Oh yeah, it cost Paul. We saw that. It started with a cost, like a beating with rods and prison and shackles. If following Jesus cost Paul, yeah, because 10 years later, now he's in Rome and he's in another prison. It cost him to follow Jesus did it cost Moses to lead the children of Israel? Yeah, it cost Moses. 40 years in a desert, learning to be a shepherd, training. And then, then when it was go time, you got 40 more years in the desert, desert with 2 million whiners. <laughs> it cost Paul to follow the will of God. I, sorry, Moses. But Moses said this. You know, he can't, it's interesting that both Moses and Paul came to the same point. Moses said this when the Lord was like at the point where he's like ready to strike down the children of Israel. Moses said, Lord, you, if you're gonna strike them down, then you blot me out of your book too. I'm willing, Lord, to pay the price for people to know you. Paul said the same thing in Romans. He said, God, man, I could almost wish that my name were struck out of the book of life so that my brothers and sisters could be saved. Because there's no birth without travail. You know, there's no resurrection without a cross. And there is no working out your salvation without sacrifice. In fact, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says this, Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Offer yourself as a sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And it's interesting that in verse 2, Paul connects this thought. He says, he, he connects the discovery of God's will. You want to know God's will? Then you offer yourself up as a sacrifice. You want to know where he's leading and where he's guiding and how he's directing? Well, the first condition is this. Start making some sacrifices for him. Let me ask you this question. Is there sacrifice in your life for the kingdom of God? Well, I made it to church today. Come on, man. 
Man up. Suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) If that's the extent of sacrifice, getting to church, then it's no wonder we have little effect for the kingdom of God. Isn't that fair to say? Isn't that fair to say? You know, it's crazy to me in one way, but but it completely makes sense in another that when you, when you look at verse 17 and 18, Paul actually attaches joy to sacrifice. That there's a connection in the relationship between sacrifice and your experience of joy in your, in, in your salvation. You know, the scripture even tells us about Jesus. It says this about Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That that's, to me is crazy. That for the sake of joy, Jesus sacrificed. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. Paul says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You know, it's crazy, the word of God tells us the joy of the Lord is your strength. And sacrifice for the kingdom opens the fountain of joy. Sacrifice for the kingdom opens the fountain of joy. Look, do you have joy? Do you have the joy of the Lord? Or is your walk with Jesus like this kind of joyless experience right now? Could it be this? Could it be that the Holy Spirit is calling you to begin to make sacrifices? To work out what God has worked in. For the sake of King Jesus, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his gospel. And if you'll submit to that, then the Spirit will do this. I promise you, he will open the fountain of joy. He'll open it. You begin to shine and speak and sacrifice for the kingdom. He will open the fountain of joy. So we'll wrap up really quick here. But but Paul follows up with two examples. Because Jesus is a massive example. It's like, man, that's so overwhelming. Tell me to be like Jesus. So he gives two more examples of people who are living out this kind of life. Two men that are shining And they're speaking and they're sacrificing for the kingdom. Turn with me, look at verse 19. Two examples. The first one is a son, Timothy. He says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered uh, by news of you. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him. Who, gen, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's, that's a man who's willing to sacrifice his life for other people. Verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son, with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust that in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Look, he, Paul gives this example of Timothy. He says, man, Timothy was genuine, man. Timothy didn't have an agenda. He cared about the same people that Paul cared about. He served alongside Paul as a son would serve his father. And Timothy was constantly concerned about the well-being of others more than himself making sacrifices to serve them, to serve Paul, to serve King Jesus. Then Paul gives a second example. A soldier, Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger And minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all. And has been distressed. Because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill. Near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him. But on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which is lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus, this man Epaphroditus was a, was a Philippian. He had come from the Philippian church to Rome to minister to Paul, to look after Paul while he was in prison. He'd come with a financial gift from, from this church. And while he was there, he got so sick, Paul tells us, that he almost died while he was there helping Paul. But God spared him. God had mercy upon him. And now Paul is sending him back to this church. And he's got this letter in hand. Him and Timothy have this letter in hand as they go back. And Paul's point is this, that Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're not going to dive any deeper than this with regards to these two guys, but that they are breathing, living examples of the life and story of Jesus. They are worthy of imitation. They are two men who were shining, who were speaking, and who were sacrificing for the kingdom of God. So let's just wrap up here this morning, right here. A little bit of application. You know, a lot of times, I got a golf swing like Will. I got to tell you, I'll just fess up now. That's why I had so much fun with him. I said, Will, that was just like my shot. There it goes. That's great, man. And you know, a lot of times in life, you step into the tee box. Ball's right there. You wind up and you shank that puppy. <laughs> you duff it. You top out. So we'll do a few of those. You make sure you give him a hard time. He's not here. 20 yards, you know. You slice it. Because like Will, I don't swing like Tiger. And in the life of faith, telling me to be like Jesus, though it's totally important to me, is totally unattainable. <laughs> That's what I feel like anyways. Until we discover this, that it's not pressure from without, it's power from within. Work out your salvation. Work out what God has worked in. I just want to give you this simple challenge this morning. And maybe let me lay it upon the dads, the fathers here this morning. With fear and trembling, dads. Dads, with fear and trembling, may you begin to freshly work out your salvation. May you begin to work out that which God has worked into you. Shine. Speak. Sacrifice for Jesus. You know what will happen? The Lord will open up a fountain of joy. He'll bring joy to your life and it will produce fruit for the kingdom of God. Your running will not be in vain. That's simple. Work out that which God has worked in. Shine, speak, sacrifice.